We should pray. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. You are a good God and you do all things well. God, when we come to chapters in your word like this, we may not want to read them. Uh, I may not want to preach them. And our hearts and our minds have difficulty understanding why accounts like this need to be in your holy word. So we need a lot of grace today and a lot of help today so that we would be humble people who would be willing to admit that there's much we don't know. There's much we don't have figured out that your ways are higher than our ways and we ought not to just lean on our own understanding, but in all of our ways do acknowledge you and trust you. So we're asking for your help today, God. We know there's great meaning and purpose here for us today. And we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to help us to Find the spiritual truths here that you have for us so that you'd be glorified, God, and for our good. We do love you and we do worship you today. We worship you even now in hearing from your word. We want to hear from you. God, it would be tragic if these friends just heard my words. So please make sure that doesn't happen. And that your truth and your word that is good for our souls comes through. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Some of you have heard me say this or you figured it out. But in this church we preach expositionally. That means a few things. But it means at least this. It means that when we come to this time of our service for preaching or sermon that our starting point is God's Word. More specifically, our starting point is a specific text from the Bible. So we don't start with an idea in my head. You're very fortunate of that. We don't start with uh, a topic. Not always something wrong with any of that. But that's not the starting place for us usually. It's a text from God's Word. And then, once we have the text, the point of the text is the point of the sermon. That's all that means, expositional preaching. It means that the point of the text is the point of the sermon. So we've got to figure out the point of the text because we're not interested in just hearing from man. We want to hear from God. And if this is God's Word, then what is the point of His Word so that we can apply it to ourselves? And then the mode that we do that is book by book, verse by verse. So once in a while, we will do a topical series and we'll talk about manhood and womanhood or we'll talk about uh, respectable sins or we'll talk about any number of different series as it might be appropriate for us as a church family, things we're dealing with. But you know, by and large, the way we handle preaching is book by book, verse by verse. Now, one of the things that keeps us from doing is fast-forwarding through chapters like Genesis 34. 
You heard Pastor Curtis read this text. I would not in a million years choose to preach on Genesis 34. It's an embarrassing text. It is hard to read. It is uncomfortable to think about what's taking place. You ever been watching a movie, maybe with children, and some scene comes up that you weren't expecting and you're scrambling for the remote control? Why? So that you can fast forward or stop or find the power button. Well, we can do that sometimes with God's Word. You all have passages you read slowly and then you have some you read really quickly. John 3.16. I'll read that slow all day long. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. That I can read that slow. I can think about it. And my mind doesn't go to any dark places. Genesis 34? I sort of want to fast forward through it. Let's just get through that. So this keeps us anchored and brings us today to Genesis chapter 34 as we continue our study in the book of Genesis, believing wholeheartedly that 2 Timothy 3.16 is true, which says all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So Paul does not say all Scripture is God-breathed except Genesis 34. (laughs) Obviously, don't preach that. But it's all good. It's all good for our souls. It's all has teaching for us from God. So we want to deal with it. So Genesis 34. If you would back up just a few verses, I'm going to read the end of chapter 33, verses 16 through 20, which just is going to set up so that we're not jumping in in the middle of the story. And remember, Jacob has just been reconciled to his brother Esau after 20 years of alienation from one another. He's just been reconciled with Esau toward the end of his 500-mile journey home with his entire family and estate. And that brings us to verse 16 of chapter 33. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. And on his way from Padan Aram, he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi. Israel. So, immediately following this reconciliation between Jacob and Esau, the two brothers go their separate ways. Esau goes south, Jacob heads west, and he's heading toward a place called Bethel. And I think, as we'll see, that he's actually vowed and committed to God that as he's going back to his homeland, the promised land that God promised him, that he is committed and vowed to go specifically to Bethel. But he stops short. He stops short in Succoth and then Shechem. And it has disastrous implications for his family. So that brings us to chapter 34. Verse 1. 
Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Dinah, as far as we know, she is the only daughter of Jacob. Jacob's got, Jacob has 12 kids right now and one daughter. So she has 11 brothers. Ten of them are older. One girl in this family, ten older brothers. And on this particular day, verse 1, on this particular day, she is venturing out away from her family and she is, the text says, she went out to see the women of the land. Now that phrase has showed up before in Genesis. This isn't a good thing that she's doing. This is a dangerous thing that she's doing. She's getting out from underneath the protection of her dad and her brothers. What it's telling us is she is, we're going to find, probably a 14-year-old girl. She's a 14-year-old girl, and like I'm sure many 14-year-old young women, they desire to be seen, they desire to see. She wants to see what's going on in the world around her. She wants to have friendships. She wants to be with her peers. And so she goes out to see the women of the land. Now that means that she's going outside of her dad's family and his estate and his people. And she's venturing into territory that is inhabited by people who in this place do not know God, uh, do not love God, do not have any care to honor God. She's venturing out into that kind of an environment and those kinds of people and she's looking to uh, engage with maybe some of her peers. And while she's out, something terrible happens. Verse 2. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Shechem is the son of a locally prominent and powerful man named Hamor. We'll learn as we keep reading through chapter 34 that he has a ton of sway over the people in this city. So he's a powerful man, he's a prominent man, and Shechem is his son. And apparently Shechem is the son of this wealthy and prominent and powerful man, thinks that he can have whatever he wants. Maybe he's used to having whatever he wants. And he sees Dinah, this lovely young woman, and he decides that he wants her, and he rapes her. There is some disagreement over the commentators over what is exactly taking place here, but the vast majority say that in fact, Shechem rapes Dinah. She has no desire to go to bed with him. He does not care. And he forces himself on her to do what he perversely pleases What is the order of his actions? Did you see it in the text? He saw her. He seized her. He lay with her. He humiliated her. Being the father now of a two-year-old precious little girl, my absolute worst nightmare. Worst nightmare. Verse 3 and 4. 
and his, that's Shechem, the rapist. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, Get me this girl for my wife. So apparently, he loves her now. And now he begins to speak tenderly to her. He decides that he wants more than just a one-time thing. He actually wants a relationship with her. He'd like to marry her. Loves her. Starts talking tenderly to her. This is all quite out of order. And then he goes to his rich, prominent, and powerful dad and says to him, Get me this girl for my wife. Now as we read through Genesis chapter 34, for all of the points that we may find in here, I think the dominating theme that we're going to see addresses the spiritual failures of Jacob. It's really hard to read, isn't it? But we're going to read about the spiritual failures of Jacob. Jacob fails his family here on so many levels. First, the reason we read the end of chapter 33 was to see that he stopped short. God didn't tell him to go to Shechem. God has told him to go to Bethel. And he doesn't go to Bethel. So he's not obedient to God or he's half-heartedly obedient. You ever obey God a little bit and it feels sort of satisfying? I'm sure that's enough. I've pacified him. I've done, I've done enough. I'm not going to totally obey Him. That'd be ridiculous, but I'm going to get close and I'm moving in the right direction. It has dramatic consequences for His family, doesn't it? So He stops in Bethel. If you were to go back to chapter 28, when God first initiated a relationship with Jacob. Remember, Jacob was trying to get away from Esau because his brother wanted to kill him because he had squandered his blessing and birthright from him. So he's heading on this 500-mile journey. And very early on in the journey, God comes to him in a dream and says, listen, I made a promise to your grandfather. I'm making the same promise to you. I love you. I care for you. Um, I, I want to change this world. I'm going to rescue this world and I'm going to do it through your family. And so he builds this relationship with Jacob. Well, the place that he did that was Bethel. Jacob wakes up the next morning, he builds an altar, he worships God. Later in chapter 31, when Jacob has decided that he's going to head back home because God said, I want you to go back home, he gets his wives together and he says, listen, the Lord has told me to go back home and he calls God to his wives, the God of Bethel. So it seems clear that he's been told by God to go back to Bethel. That's where God wants him to be. The chapter after the chapter we're reading, after everything gets so screwed up, God comes to him in the beginning of chapter 35 and says, Jacob, go to Bethel. So it's clear that what he's doing here is disobedient. He is stopping short. He didn't fulfill his vow to go all the way to Bethel in Canaan where God told him to go. Derek Kidner said, by halting his own pilgrimage, Jacob endangered others who were more vulnerable than himself. And that's what happens. 
Now, we can understand his decision if we look historically and geographically because Bethel was undeveloped and Shechem was developed. And Bethel didn't have much to offer and Shechem had a lot to offer. If you've read the book of Genesis, this is reminding you of another guy, isn't it? Remember Lot? He pitched his tent in Sodom. It was a place of great opportunity, but it was a place that was terrible for his family. And it was the ruin of his family. Well, Jacob's doing a bit of that. He's 24 hours short of Bethel. That's it. One day. Just keep walking. One day short of Bethel. But he decides that this is... It was a, it was a lot of trade took place in the city. I'm sure he had a number of good reasons why this was the place to stay. But it wasn't where God told him where to go. Now there is, in brief, there is a, a good application for us here. And that is that many of us do take too lightly moving. Whether you're moving your address, whether you're moving your church, whatever it is, we don't think about often the things that we ought to think about when we're moving. And at first it may be very clear, no, I've got to go to this place and that place and there's typically worldly opportunity that awaits us. Now, is it wrong to consider worldly opportunity? No. But the primary thing we should consider when we move and where we move is the Lord. We should consider the Lord. Will this be good for me and the Lord? Will this be good for my family and the Lord? Is this the right place? Is this the right time? James Boyce says, I think it's correct. I like it. Home is not where the heart is. Home is where the Lord is. Home is where the Lord is. That's what makes it the best place for you and for your family. The Lord. So he stops short. And then we may ask the question, as Dinah ventures out amongst her peers, among an ungodly people, at 14 years old, where is Jacob? Where is Jacob? This may not seem abnormal to us in our culture today. Oh, she's a, she's a young girl and she's becoming her own woman and she needs to experience life and we wouldn't want to shelter her and so we let her have access to this and access to that. And who are we to tell her she can't be in this relationship or the number of reasons that we have for what we do to where when we read this, we say, well, that seems perfectly normal. Well, it was very abnormal then. And it should be abnormal now. Amen. It should be abnormal now. Because Dinah was given a father. And one of the primary reasons she was given a strong father was to stand between her and anyone who may harm her. She belongs to Jacob. She's not married. She belongs to Jacob. You see, so it's supposed to mean something when and if Dinah gets married someday, it should mean something when Jacob says, I now give this woman to be married to this man. That's supposed to mean something. 
In other words, she's been mine until now. I've protected her until now. I've provided for her until now. I've made sure she has everything that she needs until now. I have led her as best I can until now. And now God has brought another man to be her husband, and so I'm glad to now give this woman to be married to this man. And friends, that's supposed to mean something in a wedding ceremony. And Jacob should not have to say, well, I'll go through the motions. I'll walk her down the aisle. I'll hand her over. I'll say, I now give this woman to be married to this man. But really, I gave her away a long time ago. When she was 14, I handed her over. Independent woman left her on her own to discover life on her own. Where is Jacob? Fathers, you have daughters. You are a gift to your daughters. And one of the gifts that you are to your daughters in this hard, dangerous world is to protect her. To protect her. Protect her body. To protect her heart protect her mind to protect her soul to protect her to give yourself up for her as you give yourself up for your wife I have a little girl this meant something different this time around studying Genesis chapter 34 Avery walks down the hall she's two years old And one of the cutest things that she wears right now are footy pajamas. You know what footy pajamas are? (laughs) Some of my Ukrainian friends were up here shaking their head first service. (laughs) Footy. You see her head. You see her hands. And then everything else is this soft, plush, one-piece pajama. Got a big zipper. Even her feet are covered. It's soft. It's cuddly. She's got ones with kittens on them. And she's got ones with little hearts on them. And as she stumbles out in the living room wearing footy pajamas, I am done. (laughs) And she knows this. And my wife is working with me on this, mentoring me through this. She's like, you can't do this. You need to put your foot down sometimes. I can't. I, I cannot do it. I am totally incapable. I'm totally enslaved to this little girl. Whatever she wants. She just walks in the room. I say, what do you want? You tell me and I will make it happen. I've had to learn her language. She's got a four-year-old brother and he interprets for me. What is, I don't know what, what is she saying. She wants a snack, Dad. I won't tell you all the things she says because some of those are just too special. They're just for me and my wife and our family. But there's a few. She'll come up and say, Daddy, uppy. Oh, yes, dear. Yes, dear. And I pick her right up. She says, Daddy, uh, sippy. Sippy cup. But she says, pissy. <laughs> so cute. So cute. Daddy, pissy. <laughs> yes, dear. Daddy, knack. Daddy, knack. Snack. Yes, dear. 
That, I'm telling you, that is the essence of our relationship. She wears footy jammies, I give her whatever she wants. <laughs> that is our relationship. And as far as I'm concerned, she will always wear footy jammies. <laughs> you see the head, you see the hands, and that's it. <sighs> it's precious. I can't imagine. I can't imagine something happening to her. Some of you young gals, some of you young women, I would say this to maybe even promote some thankfulness in your heart. Those of you who maybe did have a protective father or do have a protective father, but you felt that he's overprotective. I'm not sure there's such a thing. There may be. But thank God for a protective father. Thank God for a father that says, were you planning on wearing that? <laughs> Who are you going to be with? When will you be home? I will be joining you. <laughs> you are never to see him again. I've had those thoughts already with a two-year-old girl. I don't like that little boy. I don't like his parents. <laughs> True. <laughs> None of you. One of the things that Jacob struggles with over and over again seems to be passivity. He's had his moments where you can see he's transformed and he's changed and God, he is a work in progress for sure. And the best of men are men at best. And God is using him mightily. And you remember when he'd had enough with Laban and he finally stood up to him and said, no, I'm out of here. You're wicked. You're wrong. But those moments for him are few and far between. He struggles with being passive. One author says that he is seldom straightforward. And we're going to see it again today. Seldom is he just straightforward. This is the deal. It's black and white. This is how it needs to be. And he's not always morally straightforward. He's not always spiritually straightforward. He's going to fall prey to that again. So let's keep reading. Verse 5. Let's read his reaction which is, as best I can tell, passive. Now Jacob heard that he, that is Shechem, had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. As I read these verses and as I tried, I just don't understand his response. I've tried to figure out what is Jacob doing. Maybe there's some wisdom here. Why is he why is he biting his tongue? Why is he not speaking up? Why is he We're going to learn as we keep reading here that Dinah is being held captive by Shechem's family. She needs to be rescued. 
Why is Jacob not putting together any sort of a rescue plan? Why isn't he drawing a line in the sand? Why isn't he doing something once he has the word? Why does he just hold his peace until they came? Until his sons came? Until her brothers came? Why isn't he doing something now? So here's more spiritual failure on Jacob's part, surely, as he just does nothing when he gets word of what has just happened to his daughter. Remember, this man is seldom straightforward. There is a time to think. And thinking is important. And acting without thinking can be very dangerous. But there is most definitely a time not to think and a time to act. And to stop pondering. And to stop praying. And to do something. And yet Jacob is sitting on his hands. So while he's there, Hamor comes to him, Shechem comes to him, and while they begin to meet together, the brothers show up. As soon as they got word, they dropped everything, and they run, and they say something very good, One of the only good things that is said here when they say about Shechem, he's done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with our sister for such a thing must not be done. Well done, Jacob's brothers or Jacob's sons. That is exactly right. This is unacceptable. This is an outrageous thing that has been done. They have a more of a moral compass than Jacob does at this time, it would seem. They understand sexual purity. They understand what is right and what is wrong. Their consciences are clear. Jacob does not speak up, but the boys, they do speak up. There's also an understanding when they say this is an outrageous thing in Israel. There's an understanding that we are Israel. We're the people of God. We are the covenant people of God. We are in covenant with the one true living God. This cannot happen happen in God's kingdom. They may understand the situation better than anyone else. But as we're going to see, their reaction would indicate that maybe Jacob hasn't done a great job raising his sons either. Because there will be no restraint. There will be no self-control. It will not go well. So let's begin this dialogue here between all of them. The first one to talk is Hamor. Hamor is Shechem's father. Shechem, the one who has raped Jacob's daughter. This should be a tense meeting. But Hamor spoke with them saying, and he says basically four things. First, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Really? That's some audacity, isn't it? My son is in love with your daughter. Really? He has a really strange way of showing his affection for my daughter. That's one thing that could be said, right? My son loves your daughter. Secondly, he says, please give her to him to be his wife. Then he says, 
Make marriage with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. And then finally, fourthly, in verse 10, you shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. So he makes two proposals. Did you hear it? The first proposal is, hey, let's get our kids to marry each other. Okay, Shechem, Dinah. I know they got off to a bad start. Would you give your daughter to be married to my son? But then he also proposes, let's marry our two communities. Let's unite. Become more powerful. We have more resources. There's more now who are eligible for marriage. We can grow this family. So he proposes marriage between Dinah and Shechem, but then he also proposes a marriage between these two cities or these two families or these two communities, these two peoples. And then Shechem speaks up. Now listen to what Shechem says. Shechem is the rapist in this story. He is the one who has violated Dinah. And now hear his words in verses 11 and 12 to the father and brothers of Dinah. Let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. I wonder if you heard what I heard. He just made an offer to purchase the 14-year-old girl he raped. Can we strike a deal? What does he do? A man of wealth and prosperity, power and prominence? How does he set out to fix the situation with his checkbook? How much? What is missing from what he has said or what his father has said? There is no confession. There is no apology. There is no personal responsibility. None of that. Can we make a deal? How much is she worth to you? Let me write a check. Tell me whatever you want. There's lots of money in this bank. I will write this check for whatever number you like. It is blank. And then in exchange... You give me Dinah. Now this reminds us of what we heard, read, and will read the very last verse of this chapter when her brothers say, should we let her be treated like a prostitute? What are her brothers thinking at least right now? Do you think our sister is for sale? Do you think she's a prostitute? you think you can write a check and this will all just go away? So they respond back. But these boys are like their daddy. Jacob's name means deceiver. 
Jacob's a trickster. Jacob is the smartest guy in the room. You never know what he's thinking. You never know what he's planning. And he weasels anything he wants out of anybody. And he's used it with very much success. And his boys are not unlike him. They have a plan at this point. And so what do they do? We're told they speak deceitfully to Shechem and Hamor. So they do not believe or mean what they are going to say, but they say it to serve their ends. Verse 13, The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. Which is an interesting sentence. So it tells us they are setting out to lie to these men. And they have a reason for lying. And it is because he had defiled their sister. In other words, you may say, well, you can't. You can't lie. You shouldn't deceive. God's people should not be deceitful. But what do they say? All bets are off. And the rules changed when you violated our sister. And we're no longer obligated, they feel, to deal with you boys uprightly. So we'll deal with you however we see fit and how it serves our agenda. So what did they do? It's pretty amazing, really. All 11 of them were united in pulling this off. A lie. A deception. And look what they get these men to do. They said to them, verse 14, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves. We will dwell with you and become one people. So he says, well, he repeats Hamor's words back to him. Okay, we'll go for it. Only one condition. All of you, you two, and all the men in your city, every one of you needs to be circumcised. We are the covenant people of God. This is a sign of our covenant. And in order for us to intermingle and intermarry with you, you need to become part of this covenant family of God and take on the sign of the covenant. You must be circumcised. Verse 17, but... If you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. They sound very accommodating, don't they? Hey, listen, here's the deal. I know this is a pretty big deal, but here's a big deal. All of you get circumcised. And if you do, we'll go for your proposal. But if you don't, no big deal. That's what they say. But if you don't, no big deal. We'll just take Dinah and we'll go our own way. This could not be further from the truth. This could not be further from the truth. They have motive. They have an agenda. Let's read the response. Verses 18 and following. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. Really? <laughs> pleased? And the young man, Shechem, And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Right away. Okay. 
Yeah, that's what it takes. Give me a knife. Absolutely. Now what follows shows you and I just how prominent Hamor must have been and how much sway over the people of Shechem he must have had. Because listen to how this goes. Verse 20. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall at this town hall meeting. How you persuade a room full of hundreds of men to do this is impressive. So what do they say? Verse 21. These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Right? This is how you sell the deal. You start off talking about all the benefits and none of the cost. Right? The cost is for the end. So listen, we can become more powerful. We'll have all their possessions and resources. This is going to be really good for us. Are you guys interested? Look, they have all these beautiful women. All these beautiful women. So it's really women in power. That is the temptation. So guys, are you for this? Everybody, yes. Yes. Verse 22. Only on this condition. Okay, just one little thing you need to take care of. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. And you could have heard a pin drop in that room. He continues to sell them on it. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. So here they are. All of these men are totally deceived. Hamor and Shechem are totally deceived. Their opening line was, these men are at peace with us. We're good. But we could have so much more if we would just be willing to meet this one condition. Look at the women we will have. Look at the power we will have. And so all of the men say, okay. And now in the verses following, the plan of Dinah's brothers is unveiled. Why did they want all these men to be circumcised? On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. So what was the plan? The plan was to render all the men of the city helpless. So they couldn't put up a fight. So they waited for three days until the pain may have been most intense and most debilitating. 
And then two young men, Simeon and Levi, armed, came into the city and killed every single man and pronounced, this is what happens if you violate our sister. Now there is a heart there and a desire there that is good, that is noble. It says, you can't do this. There must be justice. We're not going to stand by and watch this unfold. However, while the rape of Dinah was totally and completely inexcusable, this punishment simply does not fit the crime. Shechem isn't even the only one punished here. It is every man in the city. This is just unbridled wrath and anger. No restraint. No self-control. The punishment does not fit the crime. It's murder. They murdered all these men. And then took all of the women and all of the children to be their own wives and be their own children and all their possessions to be their own possessions. Also, inexcusable actions on the part of Simeon and Levi. Verse 28, They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and they plundered. All the brothers deceive All the brothers plunder the city, but Simeon and Levi are singled out here as the ones who do the slaughtering. Incidentally, Simeon and Levi are Dinah's oldest brothers. And they are also sons of Leah. So while she had 11 brothers These were surely the two brothers who were closest to her and felt the greatest sense of responsibility for her as her oldest brothers. Jacob, at the end of his life in chapter 49, will reflect back on Simeon and Levi. He says this in verses 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And finally, verses 30 and 31. It's interesting, isn't it? We finally hear from Jacob. And again, I was troubled by what I heard. What he says is true, but it doesn't seem like the most important thing that would be coming out of his mouth. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. 
the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Which I think was a case of the son rebuking the father well. Well, Dad, what did you expect us to do? You hear that in their response? Were we just supposed to sit back, sit on our hands, and watch this unfold? What if they were going to treat someone else this way? Were we supposed to sweep that under the carpet, Dad? When we came into town, you weren't doing anything. You were sitting in your room in the quiet, waiting for us. Like you wanted us to take matters into our own hands. Well, we've taken matters into our own hands. Shall we allow our sister to be treated like a prostitute? Dad, she is not a prostitute. Now, what Jacob says is true. And he's probably not just being selfish. You've put me at danger, but you've put your entire family at danger. You've put all of us in harm's way by acting this way. True statement. Foolish thing Simeon and Levi did. Heart behind it, commendable. The means, wicked. Sinful, not right. And it's brought great trouble on the whole family. It's put everyone in harm's way. But Jacob, what about the offense to God? Why isn't that coming out of your mouth? Why no repenting over your failure to protect your daughter? Why no taking responsibility? Why are you grilling us for taking responsibility? You feel the tension in this family. Well, here's what we can be sure of. No one is cast in a favorable light in Genesis 34. No one. You can usually find a hero. Read the Bible, can usually find a, a hero. A Jacob or a Joseph, we'll see, or an Abraham or a Samson or Moses. Chapter 34 no one is cast in a favorable light. Everyone is acting wickedly, everyone is acting sinfully. Ligon Duncan says this the Bible, and this is true. Right, the, Bi- your, the Bible is surprisingly realistic. Regardless of what you think about the Bible or who wrote it or whether you would agree or disagree over it being the inspired Word of God, the Bible is unlike any other religious book. It is surprisingly realistic. If you're writing a book about a religion to persuade people to join the religion, you don't, as a man, include stories about your heroes like Genesis 34. You don't include those in the book. But God does, and we'll see why. Ligon Duncan said, The Bible never attempts to candy coat the failings and the wickedness of those who profess to believe in the one true God. Our, Our pillars of the faith are less polished than modern movie heroes. I mean, they're not even close to being as polished and as good. 
And it doesn't do that because it is very important for us to be realistic about the potential for the sins of even those who profess faith in Christ. This passage reveals to us the depth of sin that professing believers are capable of stooping to. And there we have it in chapter 34. It's just sin and wickedness. Sin and wickedness. And maybe surprisingly for some of you, the spiritual failures are from God's people. These aren't all people who don't know God and love God in this chapter. These are people who say they love God. These are people who profess belief in God. Who seek to honor Him and serve Him and are committed to Him. And we're seeing their sinful failures. We see Jacob's half-hearted obedience. We see his abdication of his responsibility to rear and protect his children. We see his passivity, perhaps, toward Dinah. This family has unspeakable failures in it. Almost unspeakable failures. And yet, God is faithful. Because the second thing chapter 34 is about, if it's first about the spiritual failures of God's people, Secondly, it is about the remarkable faithfulness of God. God is faithful. God is faithful. You'll see the very next verse at the beginning of chapter 35 is, And God said to Jacob, God is still talking to Jacob? God's not done with Jacob? God's not abandoning Jacob. God's not leaving Jacob. You read what Jacob did. You read about his sin. His family is a total nightmare. His family is a mess. But it doesn't matter, does it? Because God has made a promise to Jacob. And God loves Jacob. And God is not finicky. And God loves him no matter what. And no matter what he does, and no matter where he's been, no matter what his family looks like, no matter how victorious he is in the Christian life, no matter what, God is faithful. What I said I'm going to do, Jacob, I said I love you and I'm going to care for you and so I love you and I care for you. I made promises to you to build this family. I'm going to build this family. I made promises to use you for my glory. I'm going to use you for my glory. Listen, all of us as God's people are spiritual failures. Does it make you Christians sad when you hear some of the charges that are often rightfully slung at Christians? You hypocrites. You think you're so much better than everyone. Friends, I hope you seize those opportunities to clarify. If I have given any impression that I am better than you, I am so sorry. I am no better than you. In fact, I know my own heart. And if we're talking degrees and quantifying it, I'm pretty sure I'm worse. 
I am not better. I'm not a better person. I'm not a better talker, speaker. Not better in relationships. Not better at working. I'm not better than you. I'm from dust. You're from dust. I was created in the image of God. You're created in the image of God. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. What is the difference? The difference is God. Not you and me. What is the difference? At the, are we to read the end of Genesis chapter 34 and say, oh, there he is, Jacob, the bright light in the middle of all that darkness. And yet God's back. God's back. Still here, Jacob. Still here. Love you, Jacob. I'm with you, Jacob. For you, Jacob. God's remarkable faithfulness to his people. Let's close by just turning and reading together one of our favorite verses here at Veritas Church in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I think a Christian cannot function without reading this verse at least weekly. You just can't. And as I read Genesis 34, and as I'm aware of my failures and my cowardice, my abdication, my hesitancy to be morally straightforward when I should be, to be spiritually straightforward when I should be, I see Jacob's sins in me. So I've got nothing good in me to turn to. I rely fully on the faithfulness of God. I know who I am, God, and I need You. So when you look at the circumstances in your life and the issues in your life and the concerns in your life, this tells you something, this verse, doesn't about every single one of them. And we know that for those who love God. So the first thing you have to do is figure out whether or not you're in this verse. Because this verse now is for those of you who love God. Not bumper sticker love for God. Not like, well, everybody loves God. But do you love, do you know God? Old Testament God, New Testament God, Genesis 34 God, whoever God is, do you know all that God is and you love Him? So not, I've got my own ideas about God and I love Him. Well, you don't love God, then you love a figment of your imagination. Do you love God, the God of the Bible? Honor Him, want to obey Him, want to serve Him, enjoy Him. Well, for those of you who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, I find in my own personal life and spiritual life that I often, in my soul, misread this verse. 
And you know what part it is? All things. All things. All things work together for my good. All things. That means that everything in your life, everything pleasant, everything painful, that means that everything is being used and twisted by God to bring Him glory and you and I good. Everything. Perhaps if you were to be at the end of your life and look back at your life and it was a sort of tapestry, you would see everything, every little piece was a part of God working for your good. And the danger is that we don't believe that and we succumb to these circumstances in life and in these situations and we forget that God really is faithful and we just give up. And so we need verses like this. We need chapters like this to remind us of the remarkable faithfulness of God so that we can mean it when we sing lines like we do from Amazing Grace. What do we, what do we sing? Because I want you to be able to mean it through many dangers, toils, and snares. I have already come. How tis grace has brought me through. And grace will lead me home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it seems like every sermon just skims the surface of who you are. And so make us a people who can't wait to learn more and can't wait to hear more. God, we find the more we know of You, the more we love You. God, we live in a world, as You know, where there are so many misconceptions of who You are. There are so much, there's so many lies. There's so much false words regarding who You are and what You expect from us. And we have muddy understandings of who You are, God. So help us to sift through all of that, to come to your book, your Bible, that you inspired men to write about you because you wanted to reveal yourself to us. And may we understand you there. God, and I know that as we read your word and study your word, that it will be clear who your people are. Because some will hear these words and it will stink and it will be unappealing and it will be foolish and others will hear this truth about you and it will sound so sweet. It will make sense. It will feel right. It will be helpful and they will find love for you born in their heart. We love you, God, so much. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.